0: This program is made possible by a grant to Utah Humanities as part of the Pulitzer Prize Centennial Campfires Initiative, a joint venture of the Pulitzer Prize Board and the Federation of State Humanities Council in celebration of the 2016 Centennial of the Prizes. The initiative seeks to illuminate the impact of journalism and humanities on American life today, to imagine their future, and to inspire new generations to consider the values represented by the body of Pulitzer Prize-winning work. This year-long project in Utah is a collaboration between Utah Humanities, the Salt Lake Tribune, Utah Public Radio, and KCPW. The campfire's initiative is supported by the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation, the Ford Foundation, Carnegie Corporation of New York, and the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Pulitzer Prizes Board, and Columbia University. I am not thrown away my shot. I am not thrown away my shot. Just like my country, I'm young, scrappy, and hungry, and I'm not throwing away my shot. To King's College, I probably shouldn't brag, but dag, I'm amazed and astonished. The problem is I got a lot of brains, but no polish. I gotta holler just to be heard. With every word I drop, knowledge I'm a diamond in the rough, a shining piece of coal trying to reach my goal. My power speech, unimpeachable. Only 19, but my mind is older. These New York City streets get cold. I shoulder every burden, every disadvantage. I've learned to manage. I don't have a gun to brandish. I walk these streets famished. The plan is to fan this spark into so let me spell out the name i am the A-L-E-X-A-N-D-E-R. we are meant to
1: be welcome now to access utah we've not changed format that is a, a very catchy song from the musical hamilton which is based on ron Chernow's biography alexander hamilton Uh, It's a hit Broadway musical, Hamilton Is. We are going to talk with biographer Ron Chernow on the program today. In the second half of the program, we'll turn to historian H.W. Brands to talk about the Electoral College and other topics. His recent articles include how Trump has proved the founder's right, and he's been writing a history of the United States in haiku form, publishing it on Twitter. We'll ask him about that. Uh, First up, Ron Chernow, who won the Pulitzer Prize in 2011 for his biography, George Washington, A Life. Chernow won the National Book Award in 1990 for his first book, The House of Morgan. His second book, The Warburgs, won the Eccles Prize as Best Business Book of 1993, and his biography of John D. Rockefeller Sr. Titan was a national bestseller and National Book Critics Circle Award finalist. Ron Chernow, it's a pleasure to welcome you to Access Utah. Thanks for joining us.
2: Pleasure to be with you. Thank you.
1: And uh, you've got a lot going on. I understand you're heavily into your, uh, what, what's going to be a biography of U.S. Grant,
2: well, you know, my life is very disorienting at the moment, Tom, because by day, I'm in the 19th century doing the Civil War and Reconstruction with Grant, and then because of the show, nights and weekends, I'm in the 18th century, and occasionally I come up for air in the 21st century.
1: <laughs> yeah, we're quite, kind of disoriented, but but in a good way, I guess. Yes. Um, so we we played a bit from the song. I'll, I'll tell you what that song did for me. I heard a bit of that on NPR, a biography they did with you, or or an interview they did with you. And uh, that encouraged me to go out and get your books. I've been, I've been diving into uh, Alexander Hamilton, biography, uh, very interested uh, in it. I guess that's one byproduct of Hamilton, uh, increased sales of your books. But uh, got a lot of attention on Alexander Hamilton at this point. Um, what do you think that says? Why, why is Alexander Hamilton having this moment right now?
2: Well, you know, I think when I started writing my biography of Alexander Hamilton in 1998, one of the reasons I did so was that he was fading into obscurity. It seems comical now because his name is up on the marquee of a a Broadway musical. But Hamilton was regarded as a kind of second string founding father, Um, whereas I thought that he... His achievements were really monumental and deserved to be put up right up there with George Washington, Ben Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, uh, James Madison. And so I think that not only the book, but the show is part of an ongoing uh, reevaluation of the period. And Hamilton's stock just keeps rising higher and
1: higher. I want to jump into Hamilton's life. But first of all, the musical, its its it's a big hit. Um, do you think the musicals' creators got it right? Did they faithfully represent uh, Hamilton's life and ideas?
2: Absolutely. You know, usually when either Hollywood or Broadway does American uh, history, uh, that they um, start out with the assumption that they have to simplify it in some form, that it's really boring. And I think the wonderful thing about uh, working with Lin-Manuel Miranda uh, was that he had real integrity, and he realized that um, This is a life that is so dramatic and so improbable. There's no way that you can improve on it. You just have to capture it. And I think that he did it brilliantly. And uh, he really worked very, very faithfully uh, from from the book. So I'm kind of touched and thrilled and, frankly, slightly amazed that my book has triggered off this national and international phenomenon called Hamilton.
1: What did what did you think when the, they first came and pitched this uh, to your or, or Well,
2: the first time that I met um, Lynn, he was still starring in his first Broadway show, which was called uh, In the Heights. He told me that he had read my biography on vacation in Mexico, and he said as he was reading the book, uh, hip-hop songs started rising off the page, and I could remember saying to him, really? You know, this was not a typical reaction to, uh, t- to my book. And then he started telling me that he wanted to do either... Um, hip-hop concept album or a hip-hop musical about the life of Alexander Hamilton. And I think that Lynn immediately realized that he was speaking to a world-class ignoramus about (laughs) hip-hop. So I said to him, can hip-hop be the vehicle for telling this kind of very rich and complex story? And he said, Ron, I'm going to educate you about hip-hop. And on the spot, he started explaining to me why hip-hop was the perfect vehicle. He started pointing out things like, because the lyrics are very dense and rapid, you can pack an enormous amount of information into the lyrics. Um, uh, The lyrics have not only rhymed endings, but internal rhyme and wordplay and lots and lots of things that Your listeners would have just heard on that clip uh, that you just played from the second uh, song in the show. You know, I didn't initially, Tom, see what an inspiration it was in terms of matching up Hamilton with uh, hip-hop. But the way that he's portrayed in the show is as a very um, intense, driven, almost frenetic character. And that personality matches up perfectly with these very dense, rapid uh, lyrics. So as we kept working together, because we worked together for about six or seven years, I saw what a marvelous inspiration the whole thing was.
1: Let's hear another uh, piece from the song from the show. This is called Alexander Hamilton. I think this is the first, the first song in the, in the show. Right. Let's hear, hear a bit of this. How does
2: a bastard? Orphan, son of a whore and a Scotsman Dropped in the middle of a forgotten spot in the Caribbean By providence, impoverished and squalor Grow up to be a hero and a scholar The $10 founding father without a father Got a lot farther by working a lot harder By being a lot smarter by being a self-starter By 14, they placed him in charge of a trading charter
0: and every day while slaves were being slaughtered and carted away across
3: the waves he struggled and kept his guard up inside he was longing for something to be a part of the brother was ready to beg steal borrow or
2: barter then a hurricane came
0: My name is Alexander Hamilton, and there's a million things I haven't done, but just you wait, just you wait. When he was 10, his father split of it.
1: There's the opening song, and uh, I've heard you say it in other interviews, and it, it occurs to me, I, I totally agree, this, uh, that song uh, very faithfully... Encapsulates the first, what, 100 or so pages of your book?
2: Well, that was about the first 40 pages yeah, of the book, yeah. and Lynn managed to condense the first 40 pages of my book into a four and a half minute song. It was a little bit embarrassing because I could remember he came over to my house, this was early uh, 2009, he started snapping his fingers, and he sang this song. And when he finished, he said, What do you think? I said, I think this is the most extraordinary thing um, that I ever heard uh, because he'd so accurately condensed. Uh, the 40 pages into this four-and-a-half-minute opening song. What I was thinking and didn't say to him was, oh, my God, either you write very tight or I write very long. (laughs) It was slightly embarrassing that he was able to um, compress the whole thing into this amazing opening number that actually gives you the entire first third of uh, Hamilton's life. You know, he was the only founding father born outside of the original 13 colonies. So he was born in Nevis. He spent his adolescence in St. Croix. And so the action of the show starts in um, 1776. So Lynn needed this kind of rock em, sock em you know, opening number that will tell you everything that you need to know about Alexander Hamilton up till around the age of 17 or 18. And he did it.
1: Hamilton was an outsider in many ways. How, how did that shape him?
2: You know, I think that it was very, very important because um, when he came to the North American colonies, he didn't know a soul. He was an um, illegitimate, impoverished uh, kid from the Caribbean. He was just armed with a few letters of introduction. But at that time, uh, you know, all of the other founders um, were very attached to individual states. So when Thomas Jefferson would refer to my country, he was referring to the state of Virginia or what became the state of of Virginia, uh, Alexander Hamilton was immediately able to think in what he called continental terms, that is national terms. And because he didn't have, you know, that allegiance from birth to an individual state, he was able to articulate the most powerful concept of American nationalism. That is what transcended Um, the uh, identity of the individual state. So it was extremely important. And of course he came, as I said, uh, you know, um, uh, illegitimate, um, orphaned, impoverished, uh, tremendously ambitious, and saw that he could really make his mark in the American Revolution, where he just keeps rising and rising.
1: That uh, one thing comes through very clearly in your book that that white hot ambition, and that, that he's not alone, of course, in in this, but uh, he definitely was was very very ambitious, and and he achieved He achieved a lot.
2: Yeah, I mean, his achievements are extraordinary because there were um, you know three major acts of the founding drama in our country. The first was the Revolutionary War, and during the Revolutionary War, he becomes aide-de-camp to George Washington and chief of staff. He then is a battlefield, you know, hero at Yorktown. You know, the second act of the drama, the Constitutional Convention, it's Hamilton who personally issues the call for a constitutional convention in Philadelphia in May 1787. He attends, he's the sole New York delegate to sign it, then afterwards. He oversees the Federalist Papers, 85 essays um, uh, that were published anonymously to um, get people to ratify uh, the Constitution. Hamilton wrote 51 of the 85 essays in six months. And then the third act of the drama was creating the federal government, where Hamilton becomes the first Treasury Secretary at age 34 not only created the Treasury Department, uh, created the uh, Coast Guard. He uh, created the first Customs Service. He created the first central bank, the forerunner of the Federal Reserve System, first fiscal system, first monetary system, first tax system, first accounting system, on, on, on. He really was the architect of the uh, federal government. That's what I was saying earlier, Tom, these are really monumental achievements. And to my mind, you know, he should be up there uh, on the pedestal with the other main founding fathers.
1: Why do you think he faded then? He's now enjoying a resurgence. Uh, why do you think he faded?
2: Well, I think, that, I think there are a couple of reasons. You know, um, when, I, when I tell you that uh, Hamilton's main political enemies were John Adams, Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, and James Monroe, I'll even throw in John Quincy Adams and Andrew Jackson, what do you notice about that list? Mm-hmm. Just named presidents two through seven. So, you know, to the extent history is written by the victors. Hamilton was downgraded. I think that the other thing is that Hamilton was uh, so far ahead of his time in terms of his vision for the American economy. He really foresaw the modern world. And I think that for his Jeffersonian opponents, that was a very uh, disturbing and even sinister uh, vision. It's, I should say very much the country that we inhabited today, Jefferson, um, wanted in America that uh, would be based on you know traditional agriculture in small towns. Hamilton wanted those things, but in addition to that, he wanted large cities, he wanted factories, banks, stock exchanges, corporations. In other words, something that very much resembles the world we inhabit today. And I think that of all the founders, I think uh, if Hamilton uh, suddenly came alive today, he would be the one who would probably feel most at home in the modern world. He was, a, he was the great agent of modernity in that sense.
1: Yeah, you say in the, in the book he, he was the messenger from a future we now inhabit, I guess, uh, more so than any of the other founding fathers.
2: Yeah, I think so. And, um, you know, a scholar once uh, said, uh, uh, you know, noted that Washington has his uh, monument uh, uh, in D.C. Jefferson has his memorial, and he said, if you want to see Hamilton's memorial, just look out the window at the world around you, and I thought that that was really a pretty fair comment.
1: Mm-hmm. You, uh, another factor, I suppose, uh, Hamilton died fairly young in the famous duel with, with he Aaron young.
2: you know, and I think that uh, this is kind of very powerful in terms of the way that uh, he uh, is, is remembered. It's a little bit like uh, JFK, because JFK was struck down also in his forties, um, JFK in our imagination is eternally youthful and vital. And Hamilton was, you know, dead before the age of uh, fifty. And so, when we think of the other founders, we tend to think of them uh, as older men, whereas uh, Hamilton <laughs> remains in our imagination uh, the the boy wonder.
1: Hmm. Yeah, boy wonder, and that's I think that that's something that his contemporaries sort of thought about him, and sometimes in pejorative terms, right? this.
2: Yeah, and I I think that, you know, in a way that makes it uh, easier for people to identify uh, with him. You know, I think that um, Americans find it um, much easier in a certain way to relate to the figures, let's say, of the Civil War era and beyond. Um, Particularly we have photographs and then, you know, motion pictures. And um, with the founding era... there's a cultural barrier. We're looking at paintings. We're looking at paintings of people, you know, with powdered wigs and uh, buckle shoes. And so they seem remote. Hamilton doesn't seem remote. I think it's partly that he was youthful and uh, energetic. And one of the things, you know, that our director um, Tommy Cale did in the musical that's so ingenious, he decided that everyone on the stage from the neck down was going to be 18th century, from the neck up was going to be 21st century. So you walk into the theater, and they're in period costume, but there's Sasha with her afro, and there's Betsy with her kind of chopped platinum hair. They kind of look like young people walking by the theater outside, and so that the show kind of stylistically has created this bridge where you can kind of move from, you know, contemporary sensibility into an 18th century uh, sensibility, uh, and that you're kind of looking... At the past, you know, through the eyes of the present, it's kind of a wonderful sensation of sort of blending old and new.
1: This is a quote from the book. Uh, The book is Alexander Hamilton. We're talking with the author, Ron Chernow, uh, Pulitzer Prize winner for his biography of uh, George Washington. Um, and he's working on a biography of U.S. Grant. As he says, this confusing times for him. Uh, we're grateful he's <laughs> uh, spending some time with us talking about Hamilton. And uh, the biography is basis for the, uh, the musical, which is sweeping Broadway right now. Um, so Chernow says, a few figures in American history have aroused such visceral love or loathing as Alexander Hamilton. To this day, he seems trapped in a crude historical cartoon that pits Jeffersonian democracy against Hamiltonian aristocracy. Do you still think that's the case?
2: Uh, no. You know, I grew up, um, very much grew up with the image of, uh, you know, that uh, Thomas Jefferson was, Um, This wonderful man, he was the tribune of the common people, and then there was this, you know, um, evil man, Alexander Hamilton, who was the tool of the plutocrats of the day. But as I got deeper into the uh, biography, you know, it's Hamilton, who is the committed abolitionist, who co-founds the uh, New York uh, Manumission Society, in other words, Emancipation Society, uh, after the Revolutionary War, it's Hamilton, who lends his name and prestige to... Uh, the creation of a school in upstate New York for Native Americans. And Jefferson, you know, owned in the course of his life 600 slaves. Uh, And Jefferson uh, didn't even free them at his death, as Washington did. The only slaves that Jefferson freed were the children of Sally Hemings. So the deeper I got into this uh, story, um, this kind of, you know, black and white vision um, that uh, you know, we have of the virtuous Jefferson and the evil uh, uh, Hamilton began to look very, very different through modern eyes.
1: It's interesting, his attitude towards slavery, that uh, that comes, it seems like, directly from his uh, upbringing, right, in the, in the West I Indies? Th- yeah.
2: You know, I have to think so. Um, when he was um, this impoverished kid uh, on St. Croix uh, during his uh, teenage years, um, that firm once a year Uh, would import 200 to 300 slaves from uh, West Africa. So we don't have comments that he made at the time. But the fact that as soon as he comes to North America and the Revolutionary War uh, breaks out, uh, he champions a plan uh, to emancipate um, any slaves who are willing to pick up a musket and fight in the Continental Army. And then he's quite consistent in his um, abolitionism. And so I can only assume... That uh, came from his uh, first-hand encounters uh, with slavery in his boyhood.
1: Mm-hmm. A reading article here at the uh, New York Times is saying that some scholars are debating whether Hamilton the musical over-glorifies yeah. the man, inflating his opposition to slavery while glossing over less attractive aspects of his politics. Uh, you, you've said that uh, you think Hamilton, I guess within the constraints of a musical, does a good job of... Portraying the man. yeah,
3: and I don't,
2: I don't think Tom. You know, this musical, although it's, uh, it, it ends up, I think, in admiring a uh, portrait of Hamilton. It's not um, a valentine. Uh, it's very um, unsparing in certain ways, particularly the second act, where it talks about, uh, you know, he enters into this adulterous affair with a young woman named Mariah Reynolds, and then is paying hush money to uh, the husband, uh, James Reynolds. I mean, it goes into all sorts of uh, things where Hamilton is. Uh, less than an angel. In fact, it was funny, you know, when that article came out, the historian saying it was too sympathetic to Hamilton because we actually had, during the creation of the show, um, you know, discussions whether he was too unsympathetic, (laughs) you know, and that Broadway shows that, you know, the protagonist is supposed to always be uh, sympathetic. And I think that people are responding to the show, in fact, um, because this is a very complex and realistic portrait of the man in a way that you very seldom see in a musical. So even though he's kind of fascinating and admirable in all sorts of ways, the audience is actually, you know, wrestling uh, with him throughout the show and Jefferson and Madison you know in the in the show um, they actually they expressed themselves against him quite uh, forcefully and of course politically they went out
1: mm. uh, the man Alexander Hamilton would sometimes engage in self-sabotage it seemed as I'm reading the biography it, for example the Adulterous affair and, the, and, the, and, the, and the, the the hush money it's just as he's uh, sort of realizing some of his goals and, I, and I'm yelling at the book, don't do it, don't do it, Alexander, but... Uh,
2: no, actually, no, we had a student matinee, our first student matinee of Hamilton on uh, Wednesday, and uh, there are 1,300 se- seats in the theater, and when Hamilton embraces uh, Mariah Reynolds, it was like all 1,300 kids spontaneously shouted out, no, <laughs> like, you know, they wanted to, uh, uh, to stop it, you know, and then what happens, because you're absolutely right, that uh, Hamilton had a... Uh, A self-destructive streak so when his relationship and the hush money are exposed he publishes um, a 95 page pamphlet because his uh, enemies had alleged that the money that he was paying to James Reynolds was because uh, he Hamilton was secretly engaging in illicit speculation in Treasury securities with uh, Reynolds and so Hamilton wanted to publish this pamphlet uh, and say, oh, no, 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 I was paying the husband the money, not because we were speculating uh, in treasury securities. I was paying him for the favor of his wife's company. And he published a 95-page pamphlet. Even Hamilton's most admiring friends thought that, you know, a delicately worded paragraph or two would have nicely done the uh, uh, the trick. You know, and what I discovered in, in studying his life was that during the Revolutionary War, and then as treasury secretary, He's operating under George Washington's uh, uh, guidance. Hamilton was more brilliant than Washington, but Washington had something that Hamilton lacked, which was judgment. So when he's operating under George Washington's guidance, Hamilton seems invincible. The second that he leaves Washington's administration and he's just following his own impulses, he makes a series of disastrous decisions, including letting his um, eldest son fight a duel in which the eldest son dies.
1: Yeah, yeah. There's some, there's some points there where, where you you know you just you're just sad for the man. Um, yeah. I want to bring this forward to today. Um, yeah. The, the, the you know you think about the politics of today, and then and then I you know and then I I bemoan that, but then I think back. I'm reading in your book, uh, politics certainly was a blood sport at that point.
2: The, Absolutely. Um, you know, in the 1790s, even though. You know, these figures were so brilliant, and they really were philosopher kings, our founders. Um, But having said that, uh, Americans don't realize that the politics of the early republic were as malicious and partisan as anything we see today. Hamilton's affair with Mariah Reynolds was exposed in the press. When Thomas Jefferson becomes president during his first term his relationship with Sally Hemings is exposed in the press and so you had a very nasty partisan press Um, and you know the the uh, the founders even though they were such brilliant and uh, principled figures could be absolutely brutal toward uh, each other and what I love about the show is I think people are coming out of the show with you know two different feelings one is inspiration You know, they see the creation, uh, winning the Revolutionary War, writing a constitution, creating a federal government. They see all of these um, political accomplishments that far surpass anything that we're seeing today. And they're inspired. At the same time, they're seeing, you know, how malicious and partisan things were at that time. And they realize it wasn't just kind of a golden age and everything has been, you know, downhill uh, since then. But a lot of things that disturb us today... Um, were the same things that disturbed the founders two hundred years ago. Hmm.
1: Why do you think uh, Hamilton resonates so much, especially through his vehicle of the of, of the musical? Why, why do you think he resonates so so much?
2: Well, you know, I think that uh, partly um, he comes, as I was saying before, he comes to North America. He doesn't know uh, soul, so he's the he's the quintessential immigrant. He's really the most influential immigrant uh, in our history, and I think that very importantly. For people, and I see this really resonates with young people, he was a self-invented figure. You know, he was an extraordinarily smart and talented man, you know, and he thought that he could do anything, and, and he seemed to in many ways. And, you know, when we were working on the show, I knew that people would be walking out of the theater with a lot of the political, you know, parallels that we were just, uh, and political differences that we were just talking about, but I had not foreseen uh, with, with uh, the musical, and I should have, is that a lot of people, particularly young people, are walking out of the theater thinking to themselves, what am I doing with my life? How am I using my time? What is my legacy? And that the show and Hamilton's life have this powerful, you know, personal meaning for people, which I think is absolutely uh, fantastic. You know, it doesn't get any better than this for a biographer. It doesn't get any better than this for a Broadway show.
1: Finally, what, is, uh, what does Hamilton mean, do you think? Uh, there's, he's meant a l- lot of different things over the years. What, 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 phrase it this way, what do you hope he means at this point?
2: Well, you know, um, very often people will say to me, what would the founders have thought about this? And I say, well, the founders um, didn't give us uh, a set of answers. They gave us a set of questions because they were arguing about the same conflicts we had today. Um, Hamilton was in favor of a strong central government. Um, Jefferson was in favor of states' rights. Hamilton was in favor of a very expansive interpretation of the Constitution. Jefferson was in favor of strict construction. Hamilton was in favor of executive power. Jefferson was in favor of legislative uh, power. And so I think that Hamilton has many different um, meanings, and I think that we're still debating the same issues in this election year that they were debating back in the seventeen eighties and seventeen nineties. It's quite amazing the continuity mm-hmm. of American politics. And it's, you know, an argument without an end. We'll still be fighting about this stuff fifty or hundred years from now.
1: I imagine some of those same themes carry forward to what you're working on now, the you know, US grant.
2: Absolutely. You know, and in in fact, you know, um the tension between, for instance, federal power and states' rights is right at the center. Of the, uh, of, of the civil war, but the system, you know, reaches a point uh, where those um, uh, tensions can no longer be handled within the framework of the constitutional system. I hope to God, you know, we never reach that point again in the country. And of course, you know, we're seeing in the presidential race, the Democrats are veering off towards left, you know, and the Republicans are veering off towards the, in the right, you know, and one has to hope that our constitutional system is strong enough uh, to contain all of these different contending forces that have become very, very powerful in this election year. I think it will. I, I mean, again, mm. you know, the founders, um, after the convention in Philadelphia, uh, Hamilton, Washington, Franklin, you know, they thought the Constitution might last 20 years. I think if they came back, nothing would amaze them more than how uh, durable the U.S. Constitution has been.
1: We've been talking with uh, Ron Chernow. His uh, biography, Alexander Hamilton, is the inspiration for the hit Broadway musical, Hamilton. And uh, his uh, book, George Washington, A Life, uh, won the Pulitzer Prize in 2011. He's also author of The House of Morgan, The Warburgs, and a biography of John D. Rockefeller Sr. called Titan. And uh, we're going to go out with the last song in the musical, Hamilton, Who Lives, Who Dies, Who Tells Your uh, Story. Ron Chernow, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much.
2: Oh, great pleasure. Thanks so much, Tom.
1: Thank you.
3: Who lives, who dies, who tells your
2: story?
0: Every other founding father's story gets told. Every other founding father gets to grow old. And when you're gone, who remembers your name? Who keeps your flame? Who tells your story? Who tells your story? Who tells Another 50 years It's not enough I interview every soldier Who fought by your side tells our story I try to make sense First private orphanage in New York City. The orphanage. I helped raise hundreds of children did you know that while enrollments in foreign language classes are dropping on college campuses nationwide, the number of college students who are learning American Sign Language is going up? A report from the Modern Language Association shows aggregate foreign language enrollments decreased by 6.7 percent from 2009 to 2013 in the United States. But American Sign Language enrollments went up 19 percent over the same four years. Students may be drawn to sign language because it is visual and because it satisfies a foreign language requirement. They may also want to communicate with a friend or a family member who is deaf or hard of hearing.
3: This segment of Did You Know That? has been brought to you by our members and the Emma Eccles-Jones College of Education and Human Services, committed to mentoring tomorrow's educators, researchers, and clinicians, located on campuses in Logan and 26 other sites throughout Utah. I'm Peter O'Dowd.
0: Well, first of all, it's great to be here in New York. New York is a great place. It's got great people.
3: You know, I think most people know exactly what New
1: York values are.
3: And guess what? I have New York values.
1: We're in the Empire State ahead of New York's primary as the Here and Now election road trip continues. Next time on Here and Now.
0: Join us this morning at 11 on Utah Public Radio.
1: Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. This episode of the program is made possible by a grant to Utah Humanities as part of the Pulitzer Prizes Centennial Campfires Initiative, a joint venture of the Pulitzer Prizes Board and the Federation of State Humanities Council in celebration of the 2016 Centennial of the Prizes. And this is a partnership between Utah Humanities, Utah Public Radio, Salt Lake Tribune, and KCPW. Uh, Our thanks uh, to Ron Chernow, and uh, we now are uh, bringing in Another distinguished historian, H.W. Brands, uh, is uh, holds the Jack S. Blatton Senior Chair in History at University of Texas at Austin. He writes on American history and politics. His books include The Man Who Saved the Union, Andrew Jackson, The Age of Gold, and T.R. Several of his books have been bestsellers. Two, Traitor to His Class and The First American were finalists for the Pulitzer Prize. H.W. Brands lectures frequently on historical and current events and can be seen and heard on national and international television and uh, radio. And I noticed a couple of uh, very interesting articles recently in Politico. One of those was titled, How Trump Has Proved the Founders Right. We'll talk about that as well as a project. H.W. Brands has been writing the history of the United States in haiku form, publishing it on Twitter. Uh, H.W. Brands, welcome to the program.
3: I'm delighted to be with you. Thanks for having me, Tom.
1: So let me, let me jump into the Electoral College. I want to bring the history forward to today, as, as you're doing in this article, uh, which, which I found in uh, Politico, Politico magazine. Um, so uh, you're saying that, I guess, if worst-case scenario, uh, Trump gets elected by popular will, but the Electoral College feels like he isn't an appropriate president, they still have the power, you're saying, to, to, uh, to, to not elect him?
3: Constitutionally, speaking, they do. And the basic point that I was making in the piece was that Donald Trump is the kind of candidate that the founding fathers warned against and wrote their constitution against. They had seen the operation of democracies in other places at other times, and they believed that they inevitably descended into anarchy and riots, usually followed by some kind of despotism. And the basic problem was that some Demagogue, and they would have used that term sort of in its Greek sense of somebody who could pander to the masses would be able to sway the votes of people who were not particularly educated on political affairs and would amass their votes and gain power by that means. The founders were unabashed elitists, and they believed that people of property, people of education, people of civic spirit were the ones who ought to run the country and not the riffraff of America. Now, needless to say, most Americans today disagree with that. But my point was that we often look to the founders for guidance. And whether one wants to follow their advice today and and say and hope that the Electoral College should choose somebody other than the popular victor or whoever it might be, that's a separate matter. But they did see that there are problems in democracy.
1: Yeah, you you quote Alexander Hamilton in Federalist Number 1. The fiercest enemies of the republic, Hamilton said, are those men who begin by paying an obsequious court to the people, commencing demagogues and ending tyrants. John Adams says this: it soon wastes, exhausts, and murders itself, talking of popular rule. So, yeah, they had a they had a a big. uh, They were very skeptical for good reason, right?
3: Yeah. Well, it's very interesting that democracy took hold in the American political conscience and culture about 1820 or 1830, thereabouts. Really, the Andrew Jackson, the election of Andrew Jackson, signified that ordinary people were going to determine the political fate of this country. And we spent the last 200 years sort of expanding the democracy. Who are these ordinary people that will actually rule? But ever since Jackson was elected, it has been essentially taboo to criticize democracy. You, can't, you will never find a candidate for office saying that, you know, I don't think ordinary people should vote. Now, there's a good reason for this, because they would be, in effect, insulting the people whose votes they are soliciting. But about the only way that one can even raise questions about democracy and whether the people always get it right is to hark back in American history to the founders, because people will pay attention to the founders, uh, and they could criticize democracy. Although on this one, um, their their, vote, their views seem to have been largely set aside.
1: As you mentioned, it's been a kind of a long, slow progression. Uh, 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 toward uh, more more pure democracy, right, to direct elections. Um, And uh, some want to turn it back, but I'm thinking about a debate in Utah. Some legislators want to um, revoke, I can't remember which amendment it is, the popular election of senators and take it back to the legislatures. I guess that's sort of the same impulse.
3: Oh, Uh, very definitely. Part of the reason for the Electoral College in the first place is it applies to the presidency, and this actually applies to the selection of senators as well there was a feeling that it would be impossible for ordinary voters to actually get to know the candidates. Because in those days of limited mass media, what would a voter in Georgia know about a candidate from Massachusetts? It was expected that the electors would know, or at least know people who did know, the candidates for president. And that was part of the reason for putting it there, simply um, a way of kind of getting better information about the candidates. But there was also a very self-conscious way of sort of filtering the popular will. In those days, in fact, when the electors were chosen, most of them were not originally chosen by the people of the states. They were chosen by the legislatures of the states. And so there was a double filter there. And again, it's partly a matter of knowing these people, but partly it's a matter of, Kind of distilling or sheltering the, the selection of the office holders from the passions of the masses. And there was a general feeling that ordinary people were more swayed by their passions than the people who took the time to become expert on this. Uh,
1: of course, um, th- this idea that the, the democracy should rule, the, the people should rule, that, that's very attractive, isn't it? Um, oh, it's yes, certainly you know, flattering
3: to ordinary people, and it's, it's flattering to all of us. I mean, the best thing that democracy has going for it is legitimacy, and that is if everybody gets to vote, then you minimize the number of people who can complain and say that I didn't have a stake in this. And you know, democracy has become, I'm not going to say it's become the rule around the world, but it's certainly gained a lot of ground since the early 19th century, and there's this than sort of expansion of political participation and the idea that this is indeed the appropriate way of doing it. And I'm certainly not saying that this country ought to turn back the clock and go back to the time when only rich white men who had lived in the same place for a long time could vote. But it is worth sometimes asking the question, what does democracy do well and what does democracy do poorly? And I mean, one of the things that's happening already is that the Republican Party, at least the leaders of the Republican Party, are clearly trying to rein in the primaries as the way of choosing their nominee. And there are lots of them who are hoping that Donald Trump in particular does not get an absolute majority by the time he gets to the convention in Cleveland, because then the convention will step in. Well, the convention, the founding fathers had no idea of political conventions because they had no idea. In fact, they had a great hostility to political parties. But the way the conventions operate, and they operated this way for 100 years from the early part of the 19th century to the early part of the 20th century. Again, these were the people who, who had a permanent stake in the fate of the party and a permanent stake in the fate of the country in the selection of candidates. And so they were the ones who were assumed to have the better judgment as to what nominee can our party put forward, who will best exemplify the interests of the party, and then presumably become the best president of the United States. And the idea that you would hand off that decision-making power to people who might or might not show up at the polls on primary day, that seemed like a, a bad idea. But it was an irresistible idea by the early part of the 20th century because the idea of democracy has basically defeated everything in its path. And it's it's why the, the vote gets expanded and why more people participate and why there will be a great deal of annoyed primary voters if – Donald Trump should get the most votes in the primaries, if not a majority, and then be denied the nomination.
1: What do you think would happen in, in today's day and age if the electors ah. in the Electoral College did countermand the, the will of the people?
3: Ah, so if the Electoral College overruled, now that would be a really interesting one. There would certainly be challenges. The, whichever party lost the White House would raise a challenge. On what grounds would they raise the challenge? Uh, they, they there's no constitutional basis for this. What they probably could say is it has been the practice for the last 150 years that electors will choose the person that their state, either state voters or the state legislature, um, instructs them to choose. But they would have to find grounds other than the Constitution of the U.S. Do you... And there would certainly be political uproar, but I'm not sure that there would be more political uproar necessarily. Then followed the, the choice of George W. Bush over Al Gore. When Al Gore got the popular majority, clearly, and Bush won uh, a Supreme Court assisted electoral majority. So we're with respect to the, the choice of presidents, we're caught with up in the sort of the rhetoric of democracy, but there still is, there still is this constitutional filter. Now it no longer acts the way it was designed to act. But it does it does mean that the candidate who gets a majority of the votes of the people will not necessarily be the president.
1: Uh, ben Carson, I noticed, is recently saying he, he wondered, he's speaking for Donald Trump, uh, or a spokesman, surrogate for Donald Trump, he says, why do we need the Electoral College anymore? This is uh, a, a question I think that a lot of people have. Do you think we still should have it?
3: Well, I'll say... I'll say it falls in the category of things that if it didn't exist already, no one would think of inventing it today because almost nobody else, almost no other country has anything like this. Um, The biggest criticism of the Electoral College is that there are times, uh, just a handful of times in American history, that it frustrates the demonstrated will of the voters. The advantage of the Electoral College, however, is that it magnifies small margins of victory in the popular vote to substantial margins of victory in the electoral vote. So it gives somewhat greater legitimacy to someone who might win by fifty two to forty eight percent, but they'll they'll get seventy five percent of the electoral vote, which it makes it look a little bit better. I'm not sure that in reality it changes anything. But it's in the Constitution and it serves the interests of small states because they're overrepresented and it serves the interests of states that are perceived as political battlegrounds. So candidates will come to states like Florida and Ohio. Candidates don't bother coming to Texas because it's reliably Republican. And so in that sense, I mean I have to say, when I'm speaking candidly to my students at the University of Texas where I teach, that you know, individually they're sort of disfranchised. Because collectively, Texas has been for the last thirty years and will probably be for the next twenty years solidly Republican. So it almost doesn't make any difference when they go to the poll. And furthermore, they cannot expect a visit from one of the candidates in the general election because everybody knows already how Texas is going to vote.
1: We're talking with H.W. Brands. He holds the Jack S. Blatton Senior Chair in History at the University of Texas at Austin. He writes on American history and politics. Uh, His books include The Man Who Saved the Union, Andrew Jackson, The Age of Gold, uh, T.R., Uh, several books have been bestsellers. Two, Traitor to His Class, and The First American were finalists for the Pulitzer Prize. And uh, he's uh, speaking with us for the the rest of the hour. We have about five minutes left. And uh, HW Renz, I I want to get to this very interesting project. You're writing a history of the United States in haiku, publishing it on uh, Twitter, Uh, tweeting it, I guess, is the... I don't know what the proper word is. Right. Um, Hmm? Why? Why a haiku history?
3: (laughs) Well, it came about because... For years, I had been giving my students guidelines as to how to format their term papers. And I'd give them a format. i say, this works pretty well. But I would say that, you know, you don't have to do it if you don't want to. And if you think you've got a really original way of writing your term paper, go ahead. I would said, as a throwaway line, if you want to write your term paper in the form of haikus, go. Do it. And so one student piped up and said, Professor, have you ever written history in haiku? And I said, no, no, I have not. So I got to thinking about it. And it was just about this time that Twitter was coming to be popular with my students as a form of social media. And I thought, you know, I could sort of broadcast history to my students in these short bursts because haikus fit quite easily, into the 140-character limit for Twitter. And so I started doing it. I've been doing it now for about five years, and it's, um, it's an interesting and enjoyable sort of sideline to what I do. The number of my followers has grown, and I, I'm, I like to think that they can't wait to get their daily dose of high 2 history. Um, and I guess I'll keep doing it. I've, I'm running into a bit of a problem, though, in that, that history seems to accelerate, the closer I get to the present. So I'm, in, I'm into the 1960s now. or Yeah, 1960s now. But the future is a, excuse me, the present is a moving target. And the one concern that I have is that, well, Twitter, five years ago when I started, was something all my students used. Well, tastes in social media change. And relatively few of my students use Twitter anymore. <laughs> so yeah. if I stay on Twitter, I might lose... The originally intended audience if i switch I, I don't know exactly what i'm going to switch to but um, we'll see but for the moment yes it's at HW Brands on twitter
1: at HW Brands on twitter uh, let me just read yes. one of these uh pretty good i thought a dismal conflict dashing vainglorious hopes embarrassing all that's the that's your uh, haiku on the war of 1812
3: Yes, I'm afraid so.
1: Uh, well, no, no, I thought it I thought it. some, you know, that's, that. It, 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 yeah. you can pack a lot into those. Uh, well, as, into it, those, and as a matter of fact,
3: sometimes come. I give my students a writing assignment. I will say, okay, so summarize, uh, it could be the election of 1896, or summarize the the march on Selma in a haiku. And I'll just have them right there in class. So I'll give them 10 minutes to write a haiku they generally find the exercise most enjoyable and they produce some good stuff.
1: Do, what do you think it does for them? What do you what do you think it uh, I guess you you have to distill a lot uh, into those 17 syllables and that means you have to you have to think it through.
3: Exactly. And and because of the nature of haiku, it's more impressionistic than it is narrative. And so I tell the students you have to decide what emotional effect you want to convey. And so with that one you quoted on the War of 1812, yeah, there was this feeling in America that this was a dismal war, and we wish we hadn't gone to it. And so if whatever they choose, I, I asked them to think about what do you think the American people, or whatever segment of the American people you're writing about at the time, felt about this? Because haikus are much better at conveying kind of emotion than they are of sort of carrying a story forward. Which is kind of a challenge to the historian at times because there are things that you need to narrate. Which is why when I was doing the, the Apollo program, the moon landing, I broke it up into, I think there were probably ten or fifteen haiku. Mm.
1: You're, you're, but, so
3: but when Neil Armstrong lands on the moon, you know, there's that moment where mm-hmm. you know you can capture the moment of the age.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's certainly true. And yeah, you say you're up to the 1960s now.
3: Yeah, I'm guess, doing yeah. the well, the countercultural movement, the hippie movement, and the Summer of Love in San Francisco.
1: All right. 67. You can check out H.W. Brand's uh, American History in Haiku Form on Twitter and uh, many books uh, to read. Uh, the website is hwbrands.com. And we're out of time, so I just have to refer people here. Brand's Laws of History Idiosyncratic Observations on Humanity's Crooked Path. Very interesting uh, there. H.W. Brands, thank you so much for joining us. My
3: pleasure, Tom.
1: Uh, and uh, coming up tomorrow, I hope you'll uh, join me for a conversation with uh, NPR reporter Barbara Bradley Haggerty. She's out with a, a new book on midlife, Life Reimagined, the Science, Art, and Opportunity of a Midlife. She says there's no such thing as the inevitable midlife crisis. Uh, it's a hopeful book. She says midlife crisis is a myth and an illusion. And uh, she'll take us into new scientific research, exploding the fable at midlife's time when things start to go downhill for everybody. Barbara Bradley-Haggerty coming up uh, tomorrow. Our thanks to uh, our guests uh, today on the program and a reminder that this episode of Access Utah is made possible by a grant to Utah Humanities as part of the Pulitzer Prizes Centennial Campfires Initiative, a joint venture of the Pulitzer Prizes Board and the Federation of State Humanities Council in celebration of the 2016 Centennial of the Prizes partnership in Utah with Utah Humanities, Utah Public Radio, Salt Lake Tribune, and KCPW. Thanks for listening to Access Utah today. Recycling has become a practice
3: many incorporate daily in their homes, and private solar panel sales are on the rise. But what else can we do in our homes to improve its energy efficiency? Whether you're a renter or an owner, we want to know your tips and tricks on how to keep your energy bills low and your homes environmentally friendly. Join our latest UPIN conversation at upr.org and join us next Wednesday night at 6 p.m. at Logan City Hall for April's Green Energy Futures meeting.
1: The Venezuelan economy is getting clobbered by low oil prices and hurt as bad as anybody, Venezuelan ranchers. When we see those lines, it's not because we as producers do not want to supply them. It's that we don't have the conditions to do so. I'm Kai Rizdal, Big Ag and Big Oil in Venezuela. That's next time on Marketplace.
0: Join us tonight at 6.30 on Utah Public Radio.
1: This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1
3: Richfield, hd one Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan.
0: A service of the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University, this is Utah Public Radio. Thank you for listening today.